Well, this morning uh, we embark on a new series uh, that is focused on the advent of Christ. As I said last week, it is a good thing to set aside time each year to ponder and reflect the wonder and the miracle, the hope and the peace of Jesus' birth, what he brings to us. Now, I'll say this until my dying death, that we cannot truly appreciate the wonder and the beauty of the birth of Christ in any wise apart from the death of Christ. There is a certain amazement that we feel that God would indeed tabernacle among us, that the word would become flesh, that we would not be alone in our pain, in our grief, in our doubts, and our toil. We do well to take it all in, to soak it all in. Emmanuel, God with us, to be comforted by God's intentionality and his presence. It is a great aid in our troubles, and it touches us in the very deepest part of our soul. But fellow saints, these musings by themselves are insufficient and incapable of carrying the day. Furthermore, if they are the culmination of our thoughts on the matter, they do injustice to the prophetic voices that God set in, in place for the centuries leading up to Jesus' coming. The miracle of his birth and the agony of his soul in his sufferings are intrinsically intertwined. The wonder of his coming and the power of his resurrection are absolutely inseparable. Indeed, the scriptures attest that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a virgin, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption into his family. That, in a nutshell, is what Paul told the Galatians. Our series this month is entitled, Heralds of His Coming. The prophetic voices spoke about the coming of Christ and about His ministry. Their detailed and composite picture shows us three things. Remember these. The glory of God, the beauty of Christ, and the power of the gospel. The glory of God, the beauty of Christ, and the power of the gospel. It all begins with the wonder of the incarnations and the blessings that would flow from the life and the ministry of our Lord. This month we'll examine these gems and draw comfort and encouragement from the unfolding drama of redemption. Now, when we think of our Lord's coming, we naturally think of the gospel accounts. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they told us the story of Jesus. But this morning, I'd like to take you back to the very first mention of Christmas. It's in the book of beginnings in Genesis. So let's set the stage. 
You might recall the first two chapters of your Bible and the last two chapters of your Bible show us what creation looks like without the effects of sin or sin itself. The rest of the 1,185 chapters in your Bible speak to the devastating effects of sin right alongside the drama of redemption. God rescuing us, coming to us in the midst of the chaos. Genesis chapter 3 is a remarkable chapter in your Bible. It tells us of the greatest problem that we will ever face and also the greatest gift that we could ever receive. God's wisdom on full display. Upon Adam and Eve's deception and disobedience, sin entered into the world and death by sin. So death spread to all men. Indeed, creation itself was cursed. We see that every day with disease and natural disasters, but there's more. Shame and guilt became a part of our vocabulary, although it should never be for the believer in Christ. But here's the thing. The moment that sin was introduced and we became alienated from God himself, God spoke of a provision. God had a solution. He was not taken by surprise. Let's read our first text, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Speaking of the serpent, God said there would be hatred between the offspring. But there is one who is coming who would be the focal point of history. It is true that one would inflict pain on the other, that one would bruise his heel. But saints, the Son of God, would deal the death blow to Satan and to his minions. That is the blow to the head. There you have it, the first mention of Christmas. A special birth and an unparalleled accomplishment of of a very unique somebody who would actually destroy Satan and his works. Now, on multiple levels, the entire Hebrew scriptures would tell us specific clues and details about this special one who is coming. As well, there would be an elaborate system of what we call types and antitypes that would permeate scripture. I'm speaking about the priesthood and the sacrifices that would be made. Even harvest offerings... But animal sacrifices where blood would be shed. 
These sacrifices in the Old Testament would be made literally day in and day out on a schedule throughout the year, every single year. They pointed to someone, something, who could actually get the job done because they never solved the problem. You could look at it in this way. In the first book of the Bible, Genesis, you have one sacrifice that was made right at the very beginning. One sacrifice for one person or one couple, Adam and Eve. God clothed them with animal skin. Second book of your Bible, Exodus. It expands a little bit. You have one sacrifice, the Passover, that is now made for a home, for a family. Why? Because God was redeeming his people. They would never again look back at slavery in Egypt. You might recall they were to take the blood of the lamb, a young male without any defect. And they were to capture the blood and they were to apply it to the, bo- to the doorpost of their home. Only one door in the home. But oh, the picture, the story that was told. As that family would walk through the door covered by the blood of the lamb, never again would they be enslaved to the Egyptians. And that would be celebrated year after year throughout the centuries. But the story expands in the third book of your Bible, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, that special day when the priest, the high priest, would rise up early in the morning and make sacrifices for himself so he himself could dare enter into the holy presence of God on behalf of Of the people. The entire nation. Would gather. Everybody. Would gather. There would be two goats. One. Would lose its life. Blood would be shed. The priest would. Lay his hands on this goat. And he would confess. The sins of the people. And that goat. Would die. On that day, you will recall the second or the other goat. Same. The priest would lay his hands and confess the sins of the people upon that goat. But that goat would be led out in the presence of the entire assembly out into the wilderness and let go so they could never see that goat ever again. That goat that symbolized their sin. But they knew that these sacrifices were actually not the things that were taking away sin because as soon as they made a sacrifice on any given day, the plans were made for the next one. It pointed to something ahead. 
So let's begin to lay down tracks for the Old Testament picture of this special one that is coming. Over the next couple of weeks, we're going to look on this at different levels. So each sermon, in a sense, is incomplete until we all, it all comes together. We call him the Christ, which means anointed one or the Messiah. He had to come through a very special line. If there was any deviation, he's not the one. Period. End of discussion. We'll fill in more details at a later date, but I want you to turn to Genesis, since you're already there. Genesis chapter 49. A little later on in that first book of the Bible. The lineage was named through Abraham. And now we have Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob is giving a blessing to his sons at the end of his life. And I just want to highlight chapter 49, verse 10. Speaking of Judah, one of his sons. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Now we're coming down through the line. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, now Judah. And there is someone coming from Judah's line that will ultimately rule and reign. A special one from the tribe of Judah to whom shall be the obedience of all peoples. As we travel through the Old Testament, more clues appear. Fast forward to a man named Jesse. You might want to turn to Isaiah chapter 11. We have it flashed up as well. Isaiah the prophet who ministered seven, eight hundred years prior to Jesus' birth was very clear in many things that he said. Isaiah chapter 11 verse 1 there shall come from there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit Jesse is king David's father Indeed Samuel said of David that his offspring will sit upon his throne David's offspring will sit upon his throne and will rule forever and ever it is true that Solomon succeeded David. Solomon is his son as king. But I'm here to tell you his rule did not last forever and ever. So this picture that is being painted through a particular lineage will come the Christ, the Messiah. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, now Jesse, now David. All eyes are on David's line regarding those watching for the Messiah. But now I'd like to take a moment to speak to what Messiah would do when he 
comes. It is true these voices spoke about the one who was coming and gave great detail. But it is Isaiah who offers the most breathtaking picture of his work. In fact, it is so detailed that many call Isaiah the fifth gospel writer or the evangelist. Because centuries prior, he wrote with such specificity. In fact, many liberal scholars would say over and over again that, well, Isaiah must have been written like in the second or third century AD because who could ever write with such detail? That was a nice little theory until the little shepherd boy discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls. So I'd like you to take your Bible and turn to Isaiah chapter 53. There are no slides for this one. I just want to walk you through this well-known passage. And I want you to see it. See it with your own eyes in your copy of God's Word. Isaiah begins this section in the end of chapter 52, and he basically says, who, has, who, would, who would believe this report? Who would ever believe what I'm saying about the Messiah? Because it is so extraordinary. You are likely familiar with this passage. Verse 3. The Lord's special servant, the Messiah, he was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows, well acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we did not esteem him. I want you to ask yourself a question as we look through this. Does God love me? Does God love me? Follow the vivid imagery that is given in this chapter about the suffering of Christ. Verse 4, surely he has borne our griefs and we can carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God. Here's what that's saying. We saw him on the cross. We assumed karma was in full effect. We considered him to be smitten by God and afflicted because of something that he did. He saved others, but he can't save himself. Oh, if they only knew. But let's correct that, shall we? Verse 5. But that was not the case. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him, the chastisement that brought me peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Why is this the case? Well, it's very clear. Verse 6. All of us, just like sheep, we've gone astray. We have each one turned, every last one of us, to our own way. Yeah. Now, here's the gospel. 
And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Do you receive that? Do you see that? Saints, this is centuries before Jesus was even born. He was oppressed, verse 7. He was afflicted like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shears is silent. He didn't even open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. As for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living? Of the living. That's his death. Stricken for the transgression of my people. Look at verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. It was God's will, God's intent, God's plan to crush his own son in my place. Verse 11, out of the anguish of his soul. Remember the Garden of Gethsemane? Lord, remove this cup from me. Out of the anguish of his soul. He shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, to be justified, and he shall bear their sins. There's just one little little problem with this statement. The one who is killed, we just saw that in the verse before, is now going to see the fruit of his labors. How does that happen? It doesn't happen if he's still dead. Just a little hint. Years ago, when I preached through this passage, a sister came up to me afterwards in tears. And she said, I finally believe it. I said, what? She said, I finally believe it. God loves me. He really loves me. She had grown up in the church, not this church, but she had grown up hearing about Jesus. But deep down inside, it was, well, he loves other people, but he doesn't love me. I mean, if he only knew, if he really knew the real me, of course he doesn't love me. And that nagged her for years into her adult life. But praise the Lord through the truth of his word. She was freed. And it brought such joy. Those tears that flowed on that Sunday morning were replaced by joy and joyful service to the Lord. She moved a long time ago. Um, Now I'm going to jump back and forth and lay down some concurrent tracks that are worthy of our attention. Jesus, I mean, Isaiah wrote clearly and vividly and irrevocably regarding the suffering and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But here's what's remarkable. I think sometimes we miss this part. He writes about the application, why it matters. He doesn't just say it happened. He says why he's doing it. 
Because of our sins. How many times can he say it over and over again? Our sin, our iniquity, our transgressions. He's doing it for us that we might be counted righteous. That's the thing. Led by the Holy Spirit. Isaiah tells us exactly why Messiah suffered. He told us exactly what the New Testament apostles tell us over and over and over again. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Here, here is the old converted Pharisee. Writing to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He sums up Isaiah's entire chapter in one verse. You could tack that verse on at the end of Isaiah 53 and no one would know the difference. It's the core of the gospel. Jesus not only took my likeness, he took my sin. My brother, do you see this? My sister, do you see the beauty in the power of the gospel in this one statement? It could never be anything that we earn because he did it all for us. That is grace. It is not a partial job. If we just hold on and do our part and perform well enough, maybe we will make it in. Absolutely not. This contains one of the most astounding statements in all of Scripture. I'm speaking of Paul's statement. Look again at what he says. You and I have become the righteousness of God. In Christ. That is an exchange. All of my rickety sin, my guilt, my shame, my failures. And I'm not just wiped clean per se. I am given the righteousness of God. It is how God sees me. That beautiful Bible term, justification declared righteous, declared not guilty. When you wake up in the morning, what are your first thoughts? I submit to you that this should be one of them. You tell yourself over and over and over again that you are the righteousness of God. My friend, Satan will always accuse. He loves to accuse he loves to remind you of your past. He loves to remind you of your poor performance, of your poor performance, but he has been disarmed. He has not a leg to stand on. Do not listen to him. Listen to God's word. Do you hear this? Do you believe it? The New Testament tells us over and over again to go back and look about what look at what is true about us in Christ the simplicity and the power of the gospel 
Now let's continue to develop our overall theme of the prophetic voices. We're building up on this theme this month. You might note in the very beginning of your New Testament, the very first words, hundreds of years of silence from the Old Testament, then we have the New Testament, and then boom, there's Matthew. Matthew does not say, hi, how you doing? It's been a while. We're back. You can hear us now. What does he say? Very abrupt. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Matthew comes and he brings it and he slams it on the table and he says, we've got our guy. We've got him. Listen. We didn't believe it at first either. But he's the one. He checks every single box. But who is this Jesus of Nazareth that they speak of? He surely could not merely be a superior prophet or a rabbi. Because no human being born dead in their sins could ever give me the righteousness of God. Do you remember Jacob's statement? In Genesis 49, verse 10. The blessed one who would save us and rescue us from our sins would hail from Judah's line. From the tribe of Judah. Do you remember what Isaiah said of him? From the line of Jesse, from David's lineage. Now I want you to take your Bible I want you to go to the other end of your Bible. Because remember, it's all one story. Genesis, Revelation. All one key theme, and his name is Jesus. We're spanning from the very beginning to the very end of the Bible. The the Word of God is one complete collection from different people in different times, but one message. Revelation chapter 5, verse 5. There was a tense moment that John was involved in, the Apostle John. John, verse 4, began to weep loudly because there was no one found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, verse 5, weep no more. Behold. Remember the word behold? Look. Look at this. We didn't expect this part. Pay attention. The lion of the tribe of Judah... The root of David has conquered. That's the story. He came, he suffered, and he conquered. But notice his designations. Never skip over these little phrases. We know him to be the Lamb of God, and he will forever be the Lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world who took my sin upon himself, but he's no longer on the cross. He has ascended and been given a name that is above every other name that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. 
He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. But watch what John does next. The root of David. He does not say, as Isaiah said, that Jesus is the branch that grows from the stump that is of his lineage. That is, of course, true. It was absolutely correct that one would come through Jesse, that through Jesse's stump, there would come a branch. Through his lineage, Jesus would come. Who is this one who takes my sin and literally makes me the righteousness of God? He is not merely the branch. He is the root. He is the root of David. You know what a root does? The root comes first. It is true that Jesus came through the lineage, but it is equally true that the lineage came from him. A slight change of wording, but it makes all the difference. Jesus came some 800 years after Jesse, but he is the root of Jesse. He came before him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Which is why Jesus could do what he did. Only he could do it. Only he could bear my sins. Only he could wash them all away. Only he could be the agent of reconciliation between me, a sinner, and God, who is infinitely and unspeakingly holy. That's the good news. But there's one final question that I want to ask once again, and I'd like to answer. Does he love me? Oh, we say it, we sing it, we probably believe it here, but sometimes it it has trouble settling down here. My friend, the answer is a resounding yes. He loves you so deeply that he rescued you from your sins. He loves you. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. That's the incarnation. The last verse for today is John chapter 17. I'd like you to turn there. This is the great high priestly prayer of Jesus. He is praying for all those who would come to believe in him through the ages. That includes you and me. It is one of those verses which is often overlooked. Listen to its message. John 17, verse 23. Jesus praying to the Father. I in them and you in me. That they may become perfectly one. That's the unity of the, of the saints. So that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. My friends, there is no imperfection in the love within the Godhead. God loving the Son, the Spirit, and so forth. 
It is perfect. It is endless. It is boundless. It is pure. God loves you with the same intensity and the same fierceness and the same gentleness that he loves his own son. So let's wrap this up and make application. God demonstrates his vast love for us in sending Jesus who suffered for our sins. Death has no jurisdiction over him, but he did taste death for you and for me. God's plan of redemption was rooted in eternity, of course, but it landed on the very first pages of Scripture, Genesis chapter 3. His plan was consistent through the line of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and down through Jesse and David and so forth. Jesus met all those requirements and he also defeated sin, death, hell, and the grave, and only he could do that. More on the amazing plan of God through the Old Testament prophets next week as we consider the question, How long, O Lord? A question we often ask in our distress, but here's the assignment that I'll leave you with by way of application. It's two parts. Number one, every single day, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, every single day, you remind yourself, you speak to yourself the truth of God, that God loves me. But then I want you to do something with that. Every single day, I want you to make a plan to show the love of God that you have experienced that is yours. You show it intentionally to somebody else that day. It might be that you choose to not fight with someone that day or to argue with someone that day. Maybe you go out of your way to show kindness to a stranger. Maybe you cancel a debt. Maybe you write a note of encouragement to someone who could use it. Any number of things. Be prayerful about it. But the love of God is so exquisite. It is so beautiful. It is so powerful. Don't hold it in. Especially this time of year. We know it's a wonderful time, but it's also the most difficult time of the year for so many, for so many different reasons. Would you bow and prepare your hearts for prayer? What we've spoken to over and over and over again this morning is the good news of Jesus Christ, his coming. His victory, of course, his rule and his reign. The good news of the gospel is very simple. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. The one who laid down his life, just as the prophet said, who died in the place of sinners, that's you and me, who rose again from the dead. Believe that he is capable, he is worthy, he's the only one who could pay the debt of your sin and wipe your slate clean. If you have never put your faith and your confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ, don't go through this Christmas season wondering what it's all about. Jesus said, when you believe in me, you pass from death to life. Heavenly Father, thank you 
thank you for your fierce and loyal and deep love for each of us. Well, does the scripture say, we rely on the love that you have for us. We pray today, this week, that your exquisite, patient, unconditional love would find clear focus in our thoughts and in our heart that rooted and established in love ourselves, that we would be the conduits of your love to those around us, that indeed the love of Christ would constrain and control us. Thank you for all that we consider this time of year. Help us to be mindful and considerate to those around us sensitive to things that we may not even have any knowledge of that the person next to us is walking through at that very moment. Help us to be good news. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.